performance is a telling of that space, that time, that moment, and Lynette's work, and the same with Senga. Her work birthed in me that performance. Named after the Greek goddess of dance and chorus, and also an allusion to historian Sally Baines's seminal book on postmodern dance, Terpsichorean Sneakers, Terpsichore is a platform celebrating female dancers, choreographers, and bodies in motion, curated by me, dance critic and writer Emily May. Posting information, images, and videos of female dance pioneers, both past and present, on a daily basis on our Instagram account, Terpsichore has now started its very own podcast, where I will be interviewing leading women from the dance industry about their lives, careers, and the female artists that have inspired them. For the ninth episode of the podcast, I'm delighted to welcome the amazing British Ghanaian creative Anum Bawanyo. After training in textile design and having a successful career in New York working as a knitwear designer, Enum returned to London to embark on a career as an artist. Working between the realms of textiles, movement and performance, Enum's work explores African diaspora experiences, most prominently examining the history of nude tights and the way the garment has marginalised women of colour in her Nude Me Under the Skin series, which has been performed at Christie's and the Venice Biennale. Late last year, Enum developed a live-streamed performance piece which responded to the Tate's Lynette Yadombiacha exhibition. This wasn't the first time she's responded performatively to other visual artists' work, having previously activated an African-American artist Senganangudi's abstract tight sculptures. With this in mind, I couldn't wait to talk to Enam about the parallels between textiles and dance, working collaboratively with creators from different art forms, and working as a black female artist in 2021. Well, hi, Enam. How are you doing? And where are you speaking to us from today? Hi, Emily. I am really well, thank you. I am speaking to you from sunny South London. Lovely. I miss South London a lot, so I'm quite <laughs> jealous of you being there. Thank you so much for giving us your time today on the Terpsichore podcast. I normally start off by asking my guests how they first became interested in dance, but because you work across dance and visual artists, I quite like to broaden this question to ask you what your first kind of artistic in its broad sense experiences were as a child or that you can remember? So my family are from Ghana in West Africa and one of our holidays when I was quite young, I can't remember how old I was but it would have been before the age of seven because that's when we moved to Ghana. Um, my mum took me to this weaving village somewhere in, I, call, I say Everland because I can't remember exactly which village it was, but it was from the area where my parents are from within the Ever tribe. And I just remember just being so like amazed, like almost entranced by this magical thing that was happening before my eyes of, you know, people using this wooden contraption to create fabric. And you know, they had like reams of yarn kind of dyed and out in the sun drying and it was just such a magical experience because you know as a child everything is just so like amazing and wondrous and it's something I'd actually forgotten about until you know a few years ago it really kind of hit home to me how full circle my life has become because in a sense you know my family's tribe it, weaving is indigenous to us and um, we have this specific cloth called kete which we make which is used for weddings for funerals it's just so much 
such a part of our tradition, even to the point where, you know, sometimes the symbols and the colours that we use are very specific and have meaning. And so the fact that I then studied textile design and worked as a fashion designer and then, you know, I still use textile within my artistic practice, it just kind of really cemented, you know, this is part of who I am. It's part of my ancestry. It's part of my DNA. And even with the performance aspect as well, because that is, you know, we'll talk about it, but it's very new to my practice. It's all very organic. You know, if you'd asked me a few years back, I would have said there's no way you'd ever catch me performing because I'm just, I'm quite a shy person. You know, I'm not this kind of extrovert kind of person. But I find that obviously this is something that's very kind of inherent and intrinsic to me because it just comes naturally, this form of movement. And some of it is using kind of some of the traditional dance from my tribe as well. So I just feel like, you know, storytelling, weaving, performance is all part of who I am as an ever person. And so I'm just really living my truth and my, my true self, really. Yeah, but that was the first experience, this weaving village. And just always loved art. I always loved drawing, always loved creating and making I learned to knit quite young someone from my Sunday school taught me and I used to make like clothes for my dolls and things like that so just yeah I just always loved making and both my parents are artistic so again it, it, it came from them really. <laughs> How did you go from your first observing and knowing this is something that's part of your culture and it being something that you love to do when did you kind of realize I guess specifically with textiles at first that this was something you wanted to take forward and study and make your career? So I guess like I said I always loved art and so when it came to my JCSEs I chose art as one of my subjects and I did really well I think I got an A star and so I just wanted to continue studying art and so I went on to college and did a general art and design BTEC and that's where I first kind of studied textiles in the form of like playing with materials and surface pattern at that stage it wasn't making fabric but it was just you know doing things like felting and making paper working with sugar and sand and just all these amazing materials that aren't you know your kind of traditional art making materials in the sense of fine art and so I was really interested in that and so I decided to go on and study textile design at university I just absolutely fell in love that's where I first really learned to weave using you know a hand loom and then the kind of more industrial looms and printmaking and being able to kind of put images onto fabric it just blew my mind and just instantly connected with this form of creating with your hands and also you know learning to dye like I said you know I go back to this image of when I was younger and seeing dyed yarn like out drying it and then being able to do that myself and really learn the science behind it and the fact that we're going back to its root that it's all really alchemy being able to change these natural materials and create form and beautiful things with them I think that's really the heart of why I love craft and love making because one it's making this thing with your hand and that very visceral thing and spiritual thing of you are this almost this magician concocting and creating but also the feeling the love the the emotion that goes into that you know and the person that then sees that and connects to those feelings that you have embodied in this work as you make with your hands it really speaks to the connectedness of humans and nature I guess I've been able to really kind of attach those sentiments to it now as I'm working as an artist I didn't obviously 
understand it at that level as I was studying it but that's obviously those kind of emotions were happening underneath my very kind of just physical attachment to this thing of being able to make and yeah when I finished university I didn't really know what I wanted to do I just knew that I wanted to continue working in textiles in some way one of my tutors had contact with a design company in New York that was looking for interns and they were specifically recruiting from English design schools and so I applied and was successful and so then I moved to New York and I began this career working as a, a designer so obviously starting as an intern for this company who were based in Manhattan but had a warehouse in New Jersey which is just across the river so I worked mainly in the warehouse you know as an intern we didn't really have much to do but it was just so cool to be you know in this company and just kind of seeing grassroots how a New York design company would take design and then transform it into clothing and just kind of see the whole process from beginning to end and I really loved the experience and I wanted to stay because I'd been trying to apply for jobs when I first graduated here in the UK and was getting the whole you, you know they're looking for someone with experience and so I was just like okay I'm obviously not going to get on the ladder <laughs> back home so um in New York English design talent is quite revered so it's much easier to find work so while I was there I was kind of keeping an eye out and one of the great opportunities we got in the internship was going to all these kind of trade fairs and you had all of these kind of mid-level fashion brands that often they make clothing for bigger department stores like Nordstrom's and that kind of thing and so I spotted one that did knitwear specifically and I really loved their line of clothing so I applied on the off chance and it just so happened they were looking for an assistant designer and so that was my first kind of proper job <laughs> in design and then it just kind of grew from there and so through my experience I basically kind of learned on the job going from assistant designer all the way to designer before I left. The experience had its highs and lows but I I wouldn't change a thing because I still use a lot of my experience in my artistic practice. Those are interesting years. <laughs> I'm interested what was it because obviously uh, working in New York that was more of like uh, for commercial design purposes yeah. what was it that kind of prompted you to move back to London and, and focus on your more artistic practice and textiles as an artistic language exactly as you said it was the fact that it was very commercial and it just didn't speak to me in terms of who I am as a person it was very aggressive and cutthroat and for me I just got to the point where I was like I really don't care about this. I don't care if a sample comes in with the wrong number of buttons. It's not the end of the world. We're not curing cancer here. For me, it just wasn't a priority. And it just, not to say that the fashion industry is vacuous, but for me, that's how it felt. I just felt like I wasn't fulfilling my purpose. And so I was actually hoping to switch careers and stay in the US. But working through with a visa, you needed to work with your specialism. So I couldn't switch careers there. And so I had been thinking, about either moving back to the UK or you know teaching English somewhere else and then the last job I had I was made redundant and so at that point I decided to just call it quits and move back home and start over and at that point I was actually still thinking about teaching but thinking oh if I come back to UK then maybe I'll retrain and teach art because I knew that I wanted to go back to the route of making which is what I really love and so when I moved back I did actually work in a school for two years because I just thought before I go in at the deep end let me just see what I'm like working with young people and I absolutely loved it love working with young people but 
it was more the teaching profession that I just thought, I don't know if this is for me because even the teachers I worked with, a lot of them were just saying, you know, we all go into it for the passion of working with young people and nurturing their inquisitiveness and, and helping them learn. But a lot of the time you end up just doing so much paperwork that you're not really teaching the children, you're teaching the children, but it's to what end? It's so that, you know, you get a good Ofsted report and so that you're meeting all these goals set by government and whatever. And then add to that, the coalition government came in and started scrapping funding for the creative curriculum. So I just thought, oh, this is just going to be even worse now. And at that point as well, my dear brother, one of the kind of key people in my life that, well, both my brothers are, who have kind of helped shape who I am. He had the fantastic idea of telling me to monetize all my artworks. He's like, you've got so much beautiful artwork here from uni, from college, you should be selling this stuff. And I never really thought of it until that point. And so I literally did as he said, I got a few pieces framed and found an exhibition opportunity. And that was kind of the start of my artistic career. So at that point, I thought actually what I would like to do is try and make, you know, a career for myself as an artist. And I still had this idea of working with young people kind of in the back of my head, but thought maybe it's something I can do as an artist, which has definitely proven true so yeah so that's then how the the art career began and that was back in 2010 <laughs> obviously you've come so far since then but I wanted you to maybe talk a little bit about the themes and the inspirations behind your work I've read that a lot of it is to do with telling stories of African diaspora experiences so I think the things that inspire me have shifted slightly but I think at the heart it's still this idea of learning from nature and I guess that also ties into, you know, my love of craft and that it's so kind of interlinked to this idea of working from the earth um, and from natural material. And so my kind of older works were really inspired by that. And so I used to kind of do these surface pattern paintings that were detailed reflections of flora and fauna. And I guess this kind of body of work that I've been working on since 2016 really came from this interest in tights. It was because I'd started seeing a lot of brands that make tights for women of colour. And I was like, oh wow, this is the first time I'm seeing new tights that match my skin tone. And so the question that kind of formed in my head was, well, how long has it been since tights were first invented? So then that became an area of investigation for me. But then also just because, again, as a textile artist, I love playing with material and tights is just like such an interesting and malleable material that you can bend and twist and turn. And, you know, I go one step further and I cut them up and make yarn from them and I knit with them and I recreate new fabrics from them and just all sorts of really cool things. So that was also kind of at the heart of it is being able to play with this material and create new shapes and forms with it. And so through the work, the storytelling has kind of grown the more that I've kind of researched into different aspects of this garment's history and I guess it's interesting because again it kind of goes back to my career in fashion that you know I'm kind of researching the history of this garment as a fashion item and how that intersects with a black woman thinking of this idea of the nude tights and so I researched 
all the way back through history to its first kind of existence as stockings and so then linking this history of the British Empire of the plantation owners or the British gentry that had some connection to the slave trade in some way even if it was that they owned stocks in you know the Royal Africa Company and the fact that one of the ways they displayed their wealth was through their clothing and through these stockings that were often made from cotton and so that cotton was grown on plantations and so that link then becomes the women that were working on those plantations growing the cotton and so kind of interweaving those stories and dusting off this history that you know we don't like talking about in Britain but is very much part of the foundations of the empire as it exists today and so still very much a part of my present life as a black British woman and so I wanted to kind of make those links through history but also looking at how that has then evolved how for instance black women who moved here in the Windrush era um, women like my mother she moved here in the late 60s to work as a nurse in the NHS and so tights were very much a part of their uniform but they couldn't find tights to match their skin colour and so I was thinking very much about how on a very visual level they weren't accepted but also then their own experiences of not being accepted how they were treated on the wards how they would experience racism from the patients that they were looking after and thinking about how that affected their mental health and how generationally trauma can be passed down. Then I started thinking about how my work could serve as a space for healing that trauma or for exploring that trauma or bringing it to the surface so that black women of my generation and generations to come start to identify those things and start to unpack that and start to find ways to heal from that so they don't then pass it on to generations that come forward and so that's kind of where the performance element ties in as well but also it came from my research into the ballet industry. I was going to say, because you talking about, sorry to interrupt you, but you talking about tights, when I looked at that piece of work uh, for the first time, which I believe, uh, just for our listeners, is part of your Nude Me Under the Skin series. Yeah. First thing I thought was like, oh, it's ballet tights, because there's such a conversation, not just by tights, but also in terms of like point shoes and ballet shoes, they're all like this pale pink to reflect a certain element of the industry is nude. Obviously, I think about it in dance terms, but it's so interesting to hear as well about nurses, you know, and that this is affecting across such a cross-section. Yeah, no, exactly. And I guess it kind of stemmed from my own experience as a black woman looking for tights, not finding them. And actually even remember my mum, you know, saying, oh, you know, you won't be able to find tights to match your skin tone and, and just always wearing black tights. And so even for me, like finding brands now that cater to my skin tone, it was a very emotional thing. It then hit me how, you know, something so simple can actually have a really damaging effect emotionally. And it's just this idea of being seen and also being made to feel beautiful because again, there's also this attachment to tights with sexuality. You know, when you think of how it's advertised and the erotica side of things and this idea again of black women not feeling feminine and not feeling like they're attractive so there's so many kind of connotations to how this and I there's a tagline that I kind of use in a lot of my briefings of the fact that it's this simple staple of a woman's wardrobe 
and yet it subjugates and makes you know black women feel invisible and the fact that in certain industries then it becomes even more heightened so for instance for a dancer when you think of dance is something that is just storytelling it's it's emotive and to think that these dancers are trying to do something so beautiful that tells a story that connects to our souls and they're coming from a space where they're again made to feel invisible or they're not valued or they're not of as much value as their white counterparts. And yet they still have to bring this level of passion and this connection from the soul to evoke this movement that connects to the audience while they're going through all this emotional trauma and having to kind of bed that down. And that's something that the black experience on a daily basis is this idea of having to bed down these emotions and put a smile on your face and kind of pretend that everything's okay and reach deep within your soul to be able to to do these things, to be able to care for people that are calling you these really disgusting things to your face as you're trying to clean them and care for them and help them heal. So kind of drawing all those parallels again, thinking of that trauma and how to heal from it, but also then thinking about how ancestrally if we go all the way back to a point before there was any connotation of western beauty standards how would my great 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 grandmother have walked the earth how would she be in her most true confident self and trying to tap into that energy so the performances in some ways then become portals to that point in history to bring that learning forward to the present and this idea of then finding our visibility or reclaiming that visibility for ourselves as black women becomes a theme that that kind of sits within all the performances but it's also this thing about the kind of overarching message in my work in both my artwork and the performances this thing of connectedness and oneness and that yes we have all these varied hues of skin tones that we have now kind of differentiated into race and ethnicity and all these things that divide us but actually on the most base level of humanity of energy of the fact that we are all one with the universe and that it's not about the kind of individual I but the collective we and so bringing that to the surface a lot of my works then look at what's happening underneath the skin which is why the title is nude me under the skin because under the skin we have the same ecosystem of veins and blood vessels that pump our life force through our bodies to help us kind of navigate this earth and do the things that we do on a kind of more material level and that ecosystem is present in all forms of nature even in plant life you have those same veins that pump their life force through the body so it's the overarching message is to remember that there is more to our existence than this kind of material life that we lead and that it's something that's a very spiritual vibrational thing that interlinks us with everything we coexist with so then that kind of brings in the sustainability aspect of it as well which is kind of on the surface talking about how damaging these nylon tights are to the planet but then on that level of thinking about how even in the fight for equality we're talking about this idea of equality of each living thing including our planet and how every Everything that we do not only affects each other, but affects our planet as well. I find this so interesting. I've been part of kind of conversations recently about investigations into sustainability and then another one into equity in the arts industries. And it's so interesting, which I hadn't really realized before. But anytime you start talking about sustainability, you come back to issues and conversations about diversity and equality and the same the other way around, that they're so inextricably linked in a way that 
you might not realize at first. So that's super interesting. I wanted to ask you as well, focusing on the Nude Me Under the Skin series here, was this the first time that you started incorporating performance into your work? And could you maybe tell me how it was that you, having had a primarily visual art background and textiles background, that you first had this idea or decision to take to the stage and enter your, your artworks yourself? Again, I think throughout my life, I've just realised that everything happens very organically. And so that's the same thing with the performance aspect. So it initially started because my mentor at the time, Professor Carol Tullock, she kind of encouraged me to apply to deliver a paper at this fashion conference. I just kept thinking, goodness, as an artist, I don't want to do a death by PowerPoint presentation. I want the audience to be able to connect with my work in some way. And so I really kind of thought, hard about how I could deliver something that was both engaging but also told a story and incorporated my work in some way and so I came up with this performance which was very basic in comparison to what I do now and was much more acting out this story alongside this audio monologue that I recorded and the monologue told the story of four women across different timelines in history that both connected with my matrilineal ancestors so from my great-grandmother to myself but also those points just so happened to connect with specific points in history that linked to my research so my great-grandmother was born in the 1800s kind of at the height of slavery and also colonization my grandmother was born, I think, at the time that the British Empire had colonised Ghana. And then my mother kind of both represented this time of Ghana's independence, but also the fact that she had migrated to the UK as part of Windrush. And then obviously me, a child of the 80s, who was kind of really trying to unpack all of this kind of complex and complicated history and how it's affected each of my ancestors in different ways and how that has then become a representation of who I am. And and was obviously also telling the story or the history of tights and specifically new tights up till you know present day where we now have new tights for women of color so yes the performance was very I guess I would say rigid thinking about my performances now and how fluid they are and how you know they're full of movement whereas this piece was very much a kind of I'm descending a staircase and I had this washing line which was both representational of the service work that a lot of black women do but then was also this kind of timeline of the tights in itself and so I'd put up these artworks with wooden pegs and then I ascended a staircase and I had this blanket which was a knitted cloak made from tights which I called an invisibility cloak part owed to Harry Potter because I'm a Harry Potter nerd <laughs> Harry Potter rules <laughs> but it was very much a, the you know this idea of the black woman feeling invisible and it was all made from the kind of standard new tight color and so when I ascend the stairs there's a specific point where in the monologue I kind of said something like I shed this cloak of invisibility and so I have this very kind of powerful moment of revealing myself that was pretty much it so yeah very different to the performance I do now and then my second performance again was very different but was really beautiful because I was introduced to Sengen and Goody around 
that time of, yeah, I think it was 2018, I was on this curator's program and we had the opportunity to meet with Sengen and Goody and Linda Good Bryant, who was the founder of this museum space in the 80s. Up until that point, I had no idea who Sengen and Goody was, never heard of her. And so I researched before we had this conversation and I was like, wait, she works with tights, wait, she used to do performance, wait what is this? <laughs> it was so mind-blowing to me and then kind of learning more about the themes behind her work and how connected our works were in terms of investigating these ideas of healing and African tradition. She also looked at Native American tradition and so I was then invited to activate one of her works and I was so honoured and blown away. And so that performance again was very different to the performances I do for Nude Me but that was the first time that I did real kind of dance movement because I wanted to really draw out her exploration of African tradition. And so I kind of interjected that with my own Ewe traditions. And there's a specific dance called Agbaja that we do. It really is about breathing new life back into the body, which I thought was just a beautiful way of thinking about how we can heal ourselves. So that was my second performance. It really kicked off from there. <laughs> I got invited to perform at Venice Biennale based off of the performance I did for Sengen and Goody's exhibition at Henry Moore Institute. They had actually wanted me to reenact that performance, which I obviously couldn't because for one, I was activating Senga's work from the exhibition. And for two, it was something that was very exclusive for that commission. But in applying for the commission, I had also thought of another proposal, which was the one that I delivered in Venice. Each of the performances is titled Nude Me Under the Skin, and then it has like a slightly different tagline. And so the first performance that I did, the, the one that I said was quite rigid, was Reclaiming Black Women's Visibility. And then the Venice performance was Awakening Black Women's Visibility. And that's the first time that I created a portal to link to ancestors. That was activating a knitted piece. And I made this piece specifically for the performance. There are other performances I've done where I will create a live artwork during the actual performance. But each one is either about creating this portal to the ancestors or it's about cocooning or protecting black women's visibility and with each performance my aim is to create space in particular for black women to find space to heal but in a wider sense it is for all audiences to heal you know obviously our history is a global history it affects us all and affects us in in different ways like I said it's about storytelling and I think what I've really loved about exploring performance through my work is exploring my own vulnerability both as a person and as an artist as much as I say that I'm hoping that audiences heal I think for me as a person it's been a real space for exploring a lot of my own issues and heal from that and has really spearheaded this change in me as a person and I think that's what's beautiful about artistic practice about creativity in any kind of sense of the word is that it 
is something that both delivers the artist and the audience to a new place. And so it's been a real space of growth for me. I'm just really excited to explore it further. And I think as well, it's just opened my eyes up to a different space completely. So, you know, I've always loved dance, but I'm learning so much more and getting to connect with more dancers and performers. And it just in exploring my own body, even Senga's work was very much about how the female form changes in different stages of life. I'm now in my 40s and my body works differently. As much as I still look really young and I feel young, my body doesn't work the way it used to. I can't go out all night and still operate and function. It just just doesn't happen. But I think even in just like the curvatures, different things happening in my body as I grow older, I'm learning to accept those things and work with them and I guess because the performance that I do the dance movement that I do is all very organic in the moment it's just how my body responds at that specific moment in time and how I'm feeling and if it's responding to music it's how that music moves through me and so again it then connects back to what I've been talking about in terms of energy and vibration. I find it so interesting as well we talked about it then like the leap to dance or performance it's quite different to textiles but I was just thinking about our conversation since the beginning and when you were talking about craft and that you have this physical connection with the things you're working with it actually seems that there are quite a lot of parallels the process of weaving of creating textiles of knitting you know like they're very physical thing that you have a connection to so that there is this parallel between them that's maybe not as noticed usually absolutely yeah I think it's very much the same through all artistic practice whether it's writing literature to dance to you know the more modern forms graphic design whatever it is like there's this real thing of alchemy of making it's child's play isn't it I think as artists in every form of art that exists we never have to grow up because we're always creating we're always thinking from that side of the brain and I think that's such a powerful and important tool and it's part of the reason I have such an issue with the way that craft is denigrated in you know the art world and I think that is changing I think there's definitely been a real kind of resurgence and interest in textile and seeing it as this thing of high art which I still have an issue with I have such an issue with labeling I feel like it's so divisive I think it's so linked to gender as well because my area of interest when I was doing my thesis and why I moved to Berlin was because I was very interested in Berlin in the 20s and it's so crazy how in the the Bauhaus in the workshops the craft workshops and things to do with textiles it was always the women got put in them because they were seen as lesser and so the women do these lesser art forms um so that that is at once denigrating the women, but also the whole entire art form and workshop in itself. Yeah. But it, it's hilarious because craft is historically, it's, you know, what all indigenous cultures used to make weaving in its most basic form was used to make shelter make mats to sleep on it's one of the kind of oldest forms of art I find it interesting as well because then you look at like African art and how it was so devalued and using terms like primitive and tribal and yet African art in antiquities is probably one of the most lucrative forms of art in the secondary art market and again none of that is owned by the people that made them and it goes into this whole conversation about restitution that's been happening at the moment as well. It's really interesting because there's also this thing 
of painting was lauded as high art for such a long time. Because I guess I'm thinking about weaving and how it became so industrialised, partly to its detriment because now we have fast fashion as a result, which is hugely detrimental to the environment. But there's such a hierarchy in the weaving industry as well, because even in a lot of African cultures, weaving now is like done by men. It's only supposed to be a thing that men do. And so it's so frustrating because art is genderless. You can never look at an item and say that was made by a man or a woman. I just think of young people at play up until the point where they're really made to think of a boy only plays with this and a girl only plays with that. They coexist and they play together and there's no rules of you can't do this because you're a boy and you can't do this you're a girl until they're told that and I think that's part of what my work seeks to explore is this idea of labeling and how it divides us and how it's you know at the heart of so many issues within our societal constructs and even like little things like men reclaiming the ability to wear pink and just thinking about when you really think about it how ridiculous it is At the core of it, I just see art as extremely meditative and craft specifically. There's so much benefit to it on so many different levels. So like I said, in terms of the fact that it's meditative, it has healing power in the fact of making. But I think also just in terms of how we live now and how sedentary it is. And I think during lockdown, so many people have taken up knitting and, you know, different forms of craft. And you start to use different muscles in your body. It's just a very different way of experiencing your body, let alone the fact of how fulfilling it is to make something with your own hands. And I always talk about also in a wider sense how important it is now that we have become such an industrialised digital society that we're so far removed from the notion of actually making. That's part of the reason that we don't see value in things and how we have this throwaway culture because if you knew what it takes to actually create a garment from actual source, dyeing your growing, then spinning, then dyeing, then knitting or weaving, then cutting cloth, stitching together to make a garment or to make an upholstery cover, you start to then appreciate that thing and you're not so likely then to throw away. But then you also start to understand how important it is to use natural fibres that are from the earth, that can break down again when it gets to that point. But yeah, there's just so many benefits, I think, that I really wish it was something that was much more appreciated and so much more part of our education, our national curriculum. Coming back to the relationship between your textiles and your performance, I'm quite interested and was wondering whether you could talk a little bit about your process, because obviously a lot of your performative works also include textile elements. I'd love to know, like, is there anything that comes first, like the idea for the the textile creation, and then you respond to it through movement? Or do you come up with a movement idea and then think of how you can create something around that or or does that come together organically and develop together yeah it's more that it develops together so like with the venice performance with the christie's performance i'd been invited to deliver these performances and so i started thinking about what it is that i could do like i said the venice performance i already had this proposal that existed and so i thought actually this would work perfectly so 
I already knew that I wanted to create this piece. And so I just kind of set about knitting, obviously not knowing how long it would take, how time intensive it would be, <laughs> to the point that the day of the performance, my friends were helping me finish like stitching the harnesses. I think that's one of the things that is both a blessing and a curse about my work about textiles is that it is so labour intensive. But again, it's very meditative. And so there's a lot of enjoyment from it. The movement was all organic in that moment. I think I had like half an hour before the actual performance on the day to rehearse. And I literally just placed the piece on the floor and just played about with how I thought I could move in and around the piece. And I knew that I wanted to tell this story and it was this idea of birth and rebirth. So my beginning posture was to lie in the fetal position on the floor in the middle of this piece, which is basically like a knitted rectangle that and I then lay on the floor in the shape of an eye. So it becomes like the third eye, the oculus is what it's called. And like I said, it's a portal, so it opens you up to another dimension. I knew that, so I had these harnesses that were in four corners and those four corners were to represent, again, those four women in my matrilineal line. I would start by placing them on my hands and feet and play around with this idea of being captured or trapped and wrapped up in these tights and then have this moment of release of breaking free that was trying to tell the story of how black women have been subjugated, made to fit into a box that they would never fit into and then thus breaking free they can be their true selves. For the Christie's performance obviously it was indoors first of all. It's a very different space obviously and it was for the women in the arts event so in the space I was surrounded by paintings by men I must say but of women so that in itself was interesting but then obviously these are all blonde hair blue eyed white women and so again it was this idea of the feminine ideal and this idea of black women being surrounded by these bodies so what was that conversation going to be like and even just thinking about Christie's as an institution that was birthed in the 18th century and that period of time in history so thinking about all those things and what I wanted to deliver and I knew that I wanted to create something live in the space in front of the audience and so then I was just thinking what could I use to create this thing I live just down the road from Crystal Palace there's loads of beautiful antique shops and I was like I need to find some kind of frame initially I was thinking of a picture frame that we could find stands for like a giant picture frame and then I came across this gorgeous vintage Cheval mirror. I thought this is actually perfect because thinking of a mirror, thinking of looking at yourself in the mirror, this idea of black women looking at themselves, maybe never seeing that feminine ideal, never being able to equate themselves to that feminine ideal, but then stepping through that mirror as themselves, having that moment of transformation. So I used the mirror, took the glass out, painted it black because I was going to use black tights because it was also like a laying to rest of these tights that black women have always worn because now they have tights that match their skin tone. Those ideas all kind of formed organically as I was kind of going about the process of thinking what I could do for the piece. And then for Tate we had a specific framing that they wanted the performance to speak to stillness and repose because those were the ideas they were thinking about as you know they were exploring Lynette Yadamboache's works. I was paired with 
the amazing, amazing, amazing artist Liz Gray. And again, it was very organic. We had a number of conversations and coming from the same place, had the same kind of thoughts about what we could do. Again, it just so happened I was already working on this knitted piece that we used in the performance. As we were talking about stillness, I was just thinking of lying on something, lying on a mattress, lying on a mat. And I'd actually been using my bed because I was working at home to measure this piece. I really wanted to do some of the performance in some way lying on this piece of fabric. In an ideal world, they would have been filming overhead with a drone or something. But obviously, you know, budgets aren't that, you know, immense. But I think it came off really well. And it was interesting as well because obviously it was streamed online. Up until lockdown, I had been one of those that performance has to be seen in real life. The audience needs to be with you. It's so intimate. You really need to connect and engage. But actually, I think that performance worked so well online, even just in terms of some of the things they were able to do, like the split screens. So they showed both Liz and I that you couldn't have done live in that space with a live audience. So it definitely made me think about how we can use film and video to create some really beautiful experiences. Um, you, obviously you were obviously mentioning your performance at the Tate then with the Lynette Nyedom Buyacha's exhibition. I'm interested because that to me in my head links a little bit to when you were interacting with Senya Nengudi's work as well. And because this idea of responding performatively to other artists' work as opposed to your work also creating completely your own performances. What do you find interesting about responding to the work of other artists or how do you approach this you know for example with the tape responding to the paintings how, how does this inform your work well for one both Senga and Lynette are huge huge inspirations of mine so it's just always such an honor to have that opportunity but I think I always find it really interesting because it creates new ways of seeing their work but also it really starts wider conversations as well art it's living it's a living breathing thing in every way you engage with it it says something different so going to see Lynette's work first thing in the morning like on a day like this when the sun is streaming through those kind of skylights in the Tate building will give it a very different sense to if you saw it later in the day. I think them bringing performance into that space again it's just creates another way for the works to evolve and to create like I said new ways of seeing, new ways of speaking, new ways of bringing conversation to the works and I really felt that with the Tate performance because I felt like we were very much in conversation with the people in those paintings they're already living and breathing you go in and they evoke so much emotion they make you think there are pieces there that make me think of my uncles and my aunties I can't really find the words to express my feeling I just love telling stories and I think again because my movement is so organic it's really about that feeling in that space in that time how are those people in those paintings speaking to me they're feeding my feeling and then we had the soundscape that Liz composed and then the fervor, the passion, the depth of her voice, her physical voice in the space and how it reverberated, 
how that energy filled me all then expressed itself through movement. So I think very much the performance is a telling of that space, that time, that moment and Lynette's work and the same with Senga. Her work birthed in me that performance. It's just a really beautiful thing to be able to do. I'm very passionate about the kind of meeting of different art forms and that's why I think this Tate one was so beautiful as you have visual art and movement and sound all come together to create this overall uh, performance and artwork. I wanted to ask you now, we've spoken a lot about specifically the your experiences and the experiences you're trying to talk about of black females specifically so i wanted that to lead into asking you about being the founder of the black british female artist collective i was wondering maybe you could tell me a little bit about what triggered you to create this organization and when and we've touched on it obviously but maybe why you thought it was so necessary at that time to start something like this So I guess to explain, I started my artist career in 2010 and then I had a bit of a hiatus when I started another business with a friend of mine. I actually came back to art after falling really ill and being hospitalised. Those are always the moments where you kind of reflect on life and I was like, why am I, you know, deviating from what I really want to do with my life? So I came back to art. I was almost like having to start all over again in terms of building networks and all of that kind of thing. And it was just such a challenge. And I mean, I'd experienced it to an extent before I started the business. It was just extremely frustrating. I was just thinking like what I could do about it and just talking with other artists and finding that they held the same frustrations. I just thought, okay, let's start a collective. I just felt it would be greater in numbers and have a bigger voice. And it was just really a way to give voice to the challenges we face as black women artists and the fact that our work sells for less. We have less opportunities to exhibit, less representation by galleries. And the fact that the issues that underlie that cross class, race, gender and age, because we were all coming to it later on in life, having already tried our careers and things yeah it's it's weird because obviously we're in a very different time now I think a lot of conversations are being had there's a lot more visibility there are a lot more organizations and grassroots organizations and collectives that are really part of the conversation and doing the work we have done a lot just as us as a collective to kind of bring voice to the issues in the art world or black women artists yeah just interested to see I think this moment and time has really caused a lot of institutions to be held to account and so I'm really interested to see what the future will look like. I'm hoping that this isn't a drop in the ocean and that this is the beginning of real substantial change taking place. Any time will tell. But yeah, the collective really came out of my own personal journey and it was a way for us to kind of start those conversations. It was very much about helping each other to build our careers sustainably. At the time when we started, we wanted to be able to create something for the next generation, you know. We wanted it to be something that was long lasting to have a legacy to be part of the change that we were seeking so we were talking about things like cross-cultural exchanges so we had done an exhibition with three women artists in Ghana which was kind of part of kind of starting to think about how we reach out to black women artists across different regions in the world who all face similar and also different challenges depending on where they were and I think as we grew our aims and our goals kind of started to shift a little 
little and grow. It's an ever-evolving thing. The lockdown has slowed things a lot. We did one exhibition last year. Yeah, we're also at very different places in our lives now as well. It's always about how the collective can best serve us and best serve the community. So I think that's kind of where we're at now as what will it look like kind of going forward amazing well and um it's been so interesting to talk to you i have one very final question to round off our amazing chat as this is the terpsichore podcast and we're focusing on interviewing leading women in dance and art i was wondering if you could meet and talk to any female performer artist or you can pick a couple as well from history or alive today who would it be and why and maybe what would you like to ask them Oh wow. So for me, I think I've always just been in awe of Josephine Baker. She just was so brave, just confident in herself and who she was. And I think, first of all, moving from America to Paris and just I'm trying to formulate what my question, I guess it would be, where did she find the courage to be so authentic and be so audacious and just be so confident in who she was as a performer as a black woman in that time is just so awe-inspiring and amazing to me and so yeah I just I just want to know and get her advice on how to channel that that same courage it's just amazing to me because I always feel like there's still so much work to do but we have so much more freedom than our ancestors. While the struggle is still very much prevalent, I know in myself, I have so much privilege, especially being British, that my ancestors and even a lot of my family back home in Ghana don't have. The road is so much easier for me than it was for her in that time. And yet the work, like, it's just so relevant to today. You know, you watch her performance and it's just, oh, beautiful. <laughs> Amazing. Well, that's such an amazing answer. Thank you so, so much for your time. It's been amazing to talk to you. No, thank you so much. It's an absolute honour and really lovely talking to you and getting to know you as well. I hope you enjoyed the ninth episode of the Terpsichore podcast with the amazing NM Bawanyo. If you would like to find out more about NM's work, you can follow her on Instagram at nmgd or BBFA Collective. And you can still watch her live stream performance responding to the Tate's Yannette Leodon Bayacha exhibition on the gallery's website and YouTube channel. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you could subscribe and leave us a rating and review, as it helps other people to find us. You can also follow Terpsichore Mag on Instagram or sign up to our newsletter via our website, www.terpsichore-mag.com. Thanks so much again for listening to the Terpsichore podcast with me, Emily May.